Too often, Christians and Adventists, when we speak about the end times, we do it in such a way that instills fear and terror and sorrow into our listeners. And as Paul says to the Corinthian church, it's not a sorrow that leads to godly repentance, but rather a sorrow that leads to death. And because of the unique prophetic heritage of the Adventist church, apocalyptic prophecy is always going to be a part of our DNA. And we are privileged and blessed to have that intrinsic to who we are. But so often we squander this privilege that God has given to us by distorting this end time message into one of fear and dread and sorrow. When in reality, this message is one of hope and restoration and justice. And so this morning we're going to endeavor to recapture the true prophetic DNA of the Adventist church and rediscover how our message of the end times is intended to bring hope and not fear. And as we undergo this discovery, we're also going to look at how it gives us a better understanding of the communion service that we will be looking at today. So I think it's useful to first begin by looking at what mistakes do we make when preaching or portraying end time events and end time prophecy. I think the first mistake we often make is we, mis- we mistake who the main character of the book of Revelation is. When we hear the words, the book of Revelation, what immediately are some of the images that are coming to your mind? What comes to your mind as soon as someone says the book of Revelation? We think of all sorts of things, right? And sometimes the way in which we associate images with the book of Revelation can distort our understanding of who the true main character is. I think if you asked the... the, the everyday person, uh, Christian or non-Christian, whenever people mention the book of Revelation, images like this usually will come to mind. There are lots of beasts. There's lots of dragons. We always think of the mark of the beast. That's very well known even outside Christian circles. Uh, We've got our four horsemen of the apocalypse. We usually think of these big, scary, beast-like figures. And it's not wrong to associate Revelation with these Imagery. It's in there within the book. But often when we hear about the book of Revelation, very rarely does it come to our mind images um, more in line with Jesus, the Lamb, what God is doing. Often when we speak of Revelation, we overemphasize the role of these beastly powers. And when we focus on the beastly powers we inadvertently make them the main characters of the Revelation story. And of course, that would in turn create fear into a person reading the book because this main story appears to be about what Satan and his agents, the beastly powers, are doing. But who really is the main character of the book of Revelation? Well, thankfully... John tells us at the very beginning of his book in Revelation chapter 1. If we turn there to Revelation chapter 1, John is very explicit in telling us, as you read this book, there are going to be tangents, there will be side characters and minor characters, but who's the major character, the main person that we're following in this revelation? Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1. 
John begins his entire book with these beautiful words. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is, John has, uh, it has been revealed to John about Jesus. So everything that we read about the end times all has to do with Jesus. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. So the things which must shortly take place are read in light of Jesus. Then often we accidentally put the beastly powers in there. We say, we read the things that will take place in light of the beastly powers. But everything is read in the light of Jesus. Uh, Verse 2, the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all the things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So reading the book of Revelation is intended for those who both read and hear it to be a blessing because it is revealing who Jesus truly is. Now, what a change that makes when we read from page one of the book of Revelation looking for Jesus. Where is Jesus in every page and in every word of this book. We're not really that interested in the beastly powers. They, they're, they're supporting characters, you could say. In fact, if we're to briefly look at the book of Revelation, it's surprising how little the beastly powers actually feature in any of the book. We actually usually think that they take up a lot more space in the book than they actually do. Um, we won't look... There's a lot there. We won't go through all of it. But just have a look at the character, uh, the column that says main character. In that column, how often does the beasts or satanic powers feature as main characters in a chapter? Twice, maybe one and a half. Revelation 13 is basically just talking about um, the beastly powers. And then in chapter 17, it's very much about the the Babylon beast, but chapter 18 and 19 are about the fall, the collapse of the Babylon power. So really the beastly powers get about two chapters in total that are just about them. The rest of the time they're mentioned only briefly in passing in relation to who the true main character is, God or Jesus. Uh, You can see that sometimes they are a kind of minor character in Um, chapter 6 through 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, and towards the end. But the other interesting thing is that every single time a beastly power is mentioned in Revelation, they're always defeated. Not once is a beastly power ever mentioned where it doesn't say that God does not defeat them. Now, Revelation 13, it opens up a conflict between the beastly powers and God's people, and the conflict is left unresolved. But then in uh, chapter 20, we read about the final fate of these beasts, and they are destroyed. They're defeated by God. So I just find it so interesting that in every occasion where a beastly power is perhaps mentioned, it's always followed by their quick defeat by God and his people. So how often do the beastly powers actually feature in Revelation? Well, not that often. And whenever they are referenced, 
They're the ones that are defeated. Their story is put in the book so that we know that they, Satan and his allies do not win. It is God and his people who are always victorious. So what is perhaps uh, another mistake? Our second and final mistake we make in approaching the end times. We understand now that we, in order to read Revelation properly, the focus must be on what Jesus is doing rather than what on Satan is doing. Satan features very minorly in the book. The main emphasis is on God and what he has done, is doing, and will do. So what's another mistake that we can often make in our preaching and portrayal of the end times? I think often we misjudge how the end times are actually brought about. And the major mistake we often make when talking about prophecy and updates in prophecy is that we attribute the nearness of Jesus' second coming with the activities of Satan. Here's what I mean by this. We often think, we often describe how close we are to the end times based on what Satan and the beastly powers are doing. We, we immediately jump to things like, well, who did Pope Francis visit this week and what law has Joe Biden put in to place this week? We, we often go to what we associate with the beastly powers. What have the beastly powers been doing this week? And we seem to think that it's these beastly powers that dictate how close the second coming is. How often have we heard that? Well, I, I heard the papacy did something this week. The end is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. We've put the nearness of Jesus' second coming and we've made it contingent upon what Satan is doing. That's a completely wrong approach to prophecy. We judge the prophetic clock by what Satan does rather than God. Let's have a quickly turn to Matthew chapter 24. Let's discover what is it that actually brings about the second coming. Is it the activities of Satan and his beastly powers that are mentioned in Revelation? Or does something else bring about the end times and the second coming? What really is it that brings about the second coming of Jesus? What should we really be looking for if we want to know about the nearness of Christ's return? Matthew 24, beginning in verse 3, Jesus is speaking with his disciples. And here's what he says. Now, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the disciples have lined up the question for us. This is what we want to know. How do we judge when the second coming is happening? Jesus is going to give us an answer. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will be offended, will betray one another and hate one another. There are many false prophets who will rise up and deceive many. 
And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Now we'll just pause there briefly. The activities that God, uh, that Jesus here mentions are going to lead up into the second coming. So these are the signs. How do we determine it? There are things such as false prophets. There are wars and rumors of wars. Nations rising against nations. Immorality will increase. Persecution will come about. But it's interesting that all of these things are controlled by the hand of God. The, the famines, the pestilences, the earthquakes, these are things that are a direct result, we read in Revelation, of God gradually taking away his protection from the earth, allowing the earth to suffer the natural consequences of a cursed, sinful, fallen world. So these are things which God is either initiating or God is allowing to happen. So God is the one in control of these events. We need to ensure that we understand that. God is the one in control. But verse 13 and 14 is going to be the clincher for us. Verse 13. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then what? The end will come. So Jesus says that there are signs to look out for. These, uh, the wars, the... The earthquakes, natural disasters, these are signs that point towards a soon nearness. So things which God is giving to the world to wake them up. It's initiated by God. And then he says, but finally, the end will come when the gospel has gone out into the whole world. So it's the mission of the church that is going to be what ultimately brings in the second coming. The preaching of the gospel is what the second coming is contingent upon. Not what Satan and his beastly powers are doing, but what God, what Christ and his church are doing. So what would, a, what would be a more accurate representation of an update in prophecy? Could it be things like what the church is doing? Our mission story segment. Our mission story segment is a perfect illustration of the gospel reaching out into the world. Perhaps we want to look at what is happening here in our local area. Or we hear news from uh, what the conference, the union, the division is doing to preach and proclaim the gospel of Christ. That is the thing which is going to bring about the second coming. And I think it's important that we shift our view that the second coming is contingent upon what God is doing. Not what Satan is doing. God does not run on Satan's schedule. God is the sovereign one, not Satan. And so Satan can do whatever he wants, whatever he wants. It's not going to change what God has decided, what he has decreed, and what he has planned. And so when we look at biblical prophecy, rather than measuring the distance or the nearness of the second coming based on Satan and what he is doing. A more accurate way of viewing it is what is God doing and what is his church doing? So those are the two main problems or mistakes that we often make when looking at end time prophecy. We often mistake who the true character is. And as a result of that, we usually associate him with the nearness of the second coming. But we've seen that Jesus is the main character of Revelation. He is the main focus 
And he should be our focus in determining how soon the second coming truly is. To conclude, I want to give you two reasons why we don't have to fear the end times. The number one reason I'll give for why we should not fear the end times is that this time of persecution that we often associate, that's the scary part. The time of persecution is going to be relatively short. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. And here John is having a vision of the, the beast Babylon. Babylon being the, the union between all of the beastly powers we've read about so far. The land beast, the sea beast, the dragon. They come together. They create this kind of unholy trinity of religious, political and spiritual power. And it's this, this end time beast or this end time power that will persecute God's people. But how long is the beast in power for? John actually gives us a description of how long the beast is going to be, this final beast will be in power for. Revelation 7 verse 10. He says, there are also seven kings. So these kings are referring to the powers which um, lead up to the final beast. There are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, another is yet to come. And when he comes, so this one who is yet to come, this final power, when he comes, he must continue a long time? Short space. Short time. And we get a bit more clarity on this short time as we read on. The beast that was and is not is himself himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you see. So these ten horns are the powers which support this end time power. How long are the ten... Horns, how long do they have power for? The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet. So we're talking about a future, future power. But they receive authority for how long? For one hour as kings with the beast. Now, whether we interpret the one hour as a literal one hour, probably not the case, We've seen in time periods in Revelation, usually there's a day-for-year principle. And scholars debate whether to use the day-for-year principle with the one hour. Whether it's literal, whether it's day-for-year, or whether John is simply just trying to give us this idea that it's not going to be that long. I think regardless of how we interpret it, John is trying to make it clear to the reader that these kings that support the final Babylon power... They're not around for very long. It's a short window of time. And again, when we read in verse 10, and when he comes, this final beast, when he comes, he must continue a short time. And the powers which support him receive authority for one hour, a short period of time. So we're not talking about a long, uh, elongated space of time here. And I find that very encouraging to discover that we don't need to think that it will go on for a very long period of time. The final power will uh, initiate those who want to receive the mark of the beast. God will be sealing his people. And once everyone has either received the mark of the beast or the seal of God, that's it. We're ready. We're ready for the second coming to come about. So the time of persecution and the distribution of the mark of the beast and seal of God, John seems to indicate to us is 
a brief period of time. It's not increasingly long. And the best part is what we read in verse 13. So the beast receives authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Verse 13, these are of one mind. They will give their power and authority to the beast. So these kings who rule for one hour give authority to the beast. Verse 14 is the beautiful verse. These will make war with the lamb. So the Babylon power, the kings, they will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called, chosen and faithful. So we're given this brief description that, yeah, the Babylon power and his allies, they'll, they'll be in charge for a brief short time. And it's immediately followed up with, They'll make war with the lamb and they will lose. They will be defeated. The lamb will overcome the Babylon power. To me, that's encouraging. What do I have to fear of this Babylon power? It can't do anything. It can't stand up against the God that I serve. God, the Lord of lords, the king of kings. What a beautiful description of God. He is the one who defeats this final power. And I imagine he does it with quite ease. I don't think he has to exert himself terribly to destroy this power. And that leads into the second reason, I believe, that we don't need to fear the end times. Because God wins. As we saw earlier, every time a beast power is mentioned in Revelation, it's always followed by their defeat. God wins. Every time a beast comes up on the scene, defeat. Dragon in Revelation 12, he tries to attack God's people. God protects his remnant and the dragon loses. A beast from the bottomless pit comes and destroys God's two witnesses. The two witnesses resurrect and the word of God spreads to the whole world. Every time there's a beastly power, God defeats that power. Satan and his allies are finally destroyed. Sin is finally destroyed. The curse of sin and its effects on the universe are eradicated. The righteous dead are brought to life. The character of God is vindicated in the great controversy and the wicked are punished and justice is finally executed. All of these things are things that bring hope, not fear. These are things that I look forward to. I look forward to the, the end of this great controversy for sin to finally be gotten rid of. For the righteous dead to be resurrected, for God to be vindicated and justice served. These are things which don't instill fear. These are things which bring hope. They bring joy. They bring peace. Knowing that the end, there's a brief short time of pain and suffering. And right over that is an eternity of peace. That's the part that we look forward to. So how do the end times connect with our communion service this morning? I encourage you to look at Mark chapter 14, our final text for this morning. Mark chapter 14 and verse uh, 22. Mark 14 verse 22. Jesus is sitting with his disciples just before he is going to be crucified. And, a, and here's the last thing he does with them before going to the Garden of Gethsemane. We call it the Lord's Supper. 
or we call it communion. And this is where we find the origins of the communion story. Verse 22, as Jesus and his disciples were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And Jesus said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Communion celebrates, firstly, what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The bread and the wine, symbols of Jesus' own body and blood shed for us on the cross. And it's there at the cross that Jesus is crowned king of the universe. It's at the cross that Satan suffers his first defeat, so to speak. And salvation is made accessible to all who believe. But communion also points forward to what Jesus will do. Not simply what he has done, but what he will do in the future. When we celebrate communion, we are looking forward to the day when we will eat and drink again with Jesus himself in heaven at that great supper of the Lamb. Jesus says he will not drink the fruit of the vine until we're with him in paradise. Now, to me, that sounds like a promise. That sounds like Jesus making a promise to his people that you are going to be in heaven with me one day. And until that day, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again. Not until I get to do it with you. And so the communion service really points us forward to that last, to that, that uh, supper that we have with Jesus in heaven. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that for as long as we partake of communion, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. Paul associates the communion service with looking forward to the arrival of Jesus. So not only does it commemorate what Jesus has done, it points forward to the promise of his return. And so every time we gather together and we partake in communion, it is an expression of our faith of what Jesus has done and what he will do and that he will come and save his people and that he will defeat Satan and sin once and for all. How would our perspective of the end times change if we preached it in light of communion? How would our perspective of communion change if we did it in light of the end times and Jesus' soon arrival? Not from a perspective of what Satan and the beasts and his beastly minions are doing, but what God has done, is doing, and will do. What would be our natural response to what would be our natural response to hearing the term end times or reading the book of Revelation then in light of Jesus, in light of his soon return? Would our natural response be fear or hope? I think it would have to be hope. As we said when we began, the Adventist church has always had apocalyptic prophecy in its DNA. And to me, that means that it will always have as part of that DNA Hope, because that's what apocalyptic end-time prophecy is about. It is about instilling hope 
into Christ's believers. And I challenge you that when we misconstrue that hope into fear, we not only cripple our evangelism, we not only risk hurting people like my friend experienced, but we also come dangerously close to profaning the communion service, a service that is intended for hope and not for fear. We risk bringing shame to the cross, the greatest victory of God, by taking our eyes off him and instead focusing on what Satan is doing. That's not what our calling is. Our calling is to preach the second coming and the end times with hope, not to fear it, but to expectantly await it. So as we partake of the communion service today, I challenge you to think of how you personally have betrayed the end times and the second coming to others. Has it always been in the way that God has instructed us? When you personally think of the end times, what immediately comes to your mind? Does fear immediately set on or hope? If only fear or sorrow, perhaps you need to rethink and reread Revelation. Begin in chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is what it is truly about. And if you've never given your heart to Christ, well, you have the opportunity to do so. By joining in the communion service, accepting the body and the blood that Jesus shed for you. As we eat and drink in this communion service, let's not do it in fear. Let us do it in celebration and in hope. And let us use this service to proclaim our faith in what Jesus has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And of our blessed hope in seeing him again soon.